Today, you will not hear the deep voice and perfect accent of uh, my partner, Toby Kathman, who usually runs these podcasts. You will hear an Spanish accent and this cranky voice, because today I have the pleasure and the opportunity to discuss life, discuss work, discuss lawyering, and to have a conversation with my dear partner and head of Guernica 37 International Justice Chambers and co-founder of the Guernica Group, Toby Katman. Hello, Toby. How are you? Hi, Almu. Lovely to speak to you. Excellent. Are you ready for these questions and answers uh, job that we're going to play? <laughs> With a certain amount of trepidation, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, this is a, to be a great opportunity because as much as I think I know, and uh, we have not talked enough over this, this number of years together about who, you know, how you, uh, well, began this journey and how you became a barrister. I like a great deal about you, and it was a very interesting thing to me, the fact that your journey to become a barrister is not a very traditional one. I will say it's an unorthodox track. I always call it that way. And I think it will be very interesting to hear how how this began and when you decided to, to join this noble profession. Well, I think um, unorthodox is probably uh, an understatement for how I came to be a barrister. Um, um, I'm quite often asked to to uh, talk about um, how I, on my long journey um, to coming to Guernica, and, and quite a lot of the time I, I say that I, I fell into my career. Um, um, that may be an oversimplification of, of how I came to be a barrister, but um, I think it's fair to say that the the English bar is generally composed of those that have gone through a uh, public school education, uh, red brick university education, and then almost coming straight to the straight to the bar um, out of university. So um, for me, it was it was very different. I, I had a a number of different, I would say, stabs at having a career before I settled on the law. Um, I was a photographer um, first. Um, I was involved with, uh, actually, my father wanted me to be a civil engineer, uh, which I did for a short period of time, but I didn't have a great deal of interest in that. Um, and I've done graphic design. Those are some of the things that I've done leading up to, to becoming a, a barrister. But I think what the changing point for me, I, I started working in about 95, 96, uh, with my brother, actually. Um, and we, we had this uh, interesting time in the, the champagne industry, which after doing that for some time, I decided that I, I wanted to go to university. And I was effectively pushed by my, my sister-in-law, my brother's wife at the time, um, Tali, who, who I became very close to, who pushed me 
into university. And so initially, what I was doing was a business degree, uh, a business degree with an option of law as well. So, but it was it was business law and the law relating to financial services, which is a far cry from what, what you and I do now. But it gave me my first introduction to the law. And I think one of the first debates that I became involved in, in university, even doing my business degree, was in relation to an advertising campaign um, that the the company Hoover was advertising that if you spent a certain amount of money, um, you would get a free holiday. But the, the holiday was almost impossible to to acquire. So it resulted in, in litigation. And, and that was one of the first legal debates that, that I dealt with at university. And it really gave me this passion to learn the law. And so at the end of my first year of the business degree, uh, I decided that I wanted to to transfer and I wanted to, to do um, a single uh, honours law degree. And I don't think I would have had the courage to do it had it not been for, I think, two people uh, in my life. One was Tali, my sister-in-law, and then my wife, Sander. I mean, I, I think it was talking to her that really gave me the courage to to make to make a jump. Fascinating. And let me ask you something. The perception of uh, people outside of the UK, you were born in the UK, it's the, to be a barrister versus a solicitor. Uh, it's always associated perhaps with a different amount of responsibility or duties, but also associated to elites and to a profession that has perpetuated within a fair amount of elitism. How um, has, you know, have changed over the years and why not a solicitor and a barrister? Well, I think the the traditional difference between a solicitor and a barrister um, was in court advocacy. Um, uh, barristers were those that were, would go to court and would argue a case. And the solicitor would have, um, certainly in, in a criminal law context, uh, much more direct contact with, with a lay client. Um, and would instruct a barrister to to argue the case um, in court, not just in court, but um, in written submissions, so written advocacy and oral advocacy. And that was traditionally um, the, the the principal distinction between a barrister and a solicitor. Um, you're right in the sense when you refer to the elitism of the profession. Um, and it's certainly how it's regarded uh, internationally as well. I mean, one of the first things that I found when 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 I f- first started in an international practice was the way in which solicitors and barristers were regarded internationally was very very different. Um, and it was almost as though solicitors were were looked upon as being on a low, much lower level than barristers, um, which of course is is not true at all. Um, the the two professions are just are just different. Um, you, you're dealing with with very very different skills and attributes, but but that changed um, over time. And so you now see solicitors doing much more uh, trial advocacy, um, and you see barristers dealing with um, with litigation, which was traditionally the the role of the solicitor. So, for example, um, I'm. As a barrister, I'm I'm also licensed to to conduct litigation, which previously you would never have that. So I think the 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 way in which the the two professions are considered 
has changed over time, but I think the perception, the way it's regarded internationally, is 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 still very much the same. I think people still have very traditional views as to what a solicitor does and what a barrister does. And, and quite often with some of our international clients, they don't actually know what a solicitor does um, compared to what a barrister does. So, you know, there are difficulties explaining it. There's something else that I, I believe our audience of this podcast may be of interest, and it's always been a very intriguing thing for me, is that when you think about international law, and I want to ask you more generally why international law of all the fields that you could choose, but also when you think about international human race law and international criminal law as we as we know it, and there are very few and almost non-country outside of the the United Kingdom, they has been able to house successfully such expertise in conventional legal venues. I would like to say with that I mean um, barrister chambers <clears throat> and even solicitors uh, chambers or solicitors offices. Uh, that there are a number of them in the United Kingdom. In the United States, which I'm more familiar with, you would have big law firms with financial capability of doing pro bono work and engaging uh, in this way. In, in most of the world, what you have is just non-profit or public interest associations. However, in the United Kingdom, you do have these, these barristers' chambers. How is that? And, and how did that came about? And, and is it really... Um, an honest and, and, and even profitable practice, or there are more grace than we perhaps see from, from the spectator's perspective? Uh, I think things are very different now than, than they've ever been before. Um, I think if you, if you look at the, the way traditionally that Barristers Chambers were, were established and, and how they operated um, is obviously very different than it is today. Um, Whereas you know you, you you speak about the big U.S. law firms, uh, of which there are many of them um, in London as well. Many of the the major law firms have um, very very strong uh, positions within within the U.K. market, um, and many of them are based in the city, dealing more with civil commercial law um, than anything else. But um, with with Barris's chambers, the uh, and it's also quite curious as to where they're placed. As as you know, there are, there is a, a a small part of London um, around the Inns of Courts, um, in which there there are uh, a number of barristers' chambers in in very very old, uh, beautiful buildings. Primarily, um, that they are all within the sort of the the, the small area of Chancery Lane, Holborn, around the, the four inns of court. Um, and, you know, it is still uh, considered to be uh, something that, that represents our, our great history. And, and you know, it is a, I, I suppose it is a, a, a tourist trap as well, where, where people really see um, the, this antiquated profession in that way. Um, but I think the way that Barristers Chambers has evolved over time to compete on an international market. Um, I would say it's it's primarily due to, to 
to two areas of law, international criminal law um, for certain, but also international commercial law and arbitration, which has caused um, chambers in, in two very different areas to, to evolve into much more of an international practice. And certainly from the international criminal law side, the, the, the area in which uh, most of our work is conducted, um, there is this, this desire um, of, for clients at the International Criminal Court, the, the, the ad hoc tribunals of Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and more recently um, with institutions like for Lebanon and Kosovo, um, there is this this strong desire to have British counsel. Um, it is almost as though the the way in which the English bar is considered um, far exceeds any other uh, um, legal practice around the world. Um, it is considered to be, as you as you quite rightly said, um, the the elitist profession, the the best of the best, and so um, you know it's it's a, a matter of pride to be associated uh, with such an honourable and well respected profession. But I think that the way in which chambers have had to had to change over time uh, to compete on a global scale and to be able to practice internationally um, is is something that we've seen in the last few years, and certainly it was. I would say the driving force, and we can obviously get onto it more later, but it was the driving force that pushed me out of the chambers where I used to be at Nine Bedford Row, which was a traditional criminal set of chambers, to come together and set up Guernica because of the fact that chambers are not set up to deal with international work. And as you said, there there is this uh, this notion that international human rights practice, for example, um, is is conducted primarily by non-profits, NGOs, whereas chambers and chambers practice such as ours has has started to compete more and more for that kind of work. And then that brings me perhaps to the natural next question is why international law instead of uh, commercial law or international arbitration? Why this small niche of international uh, accountability to criminal law, they're not exclusively an international human rights law? You know, there, there are a number of uh, factors that push me into developing an international practice um, and heading into international law. And um, unfortunately, I have to um, make the confession that it was more through through luck than planning. Um, but there are a couple of things that, that happened. So I, I finished my law degree in 2000 at um, the University of Northampton and then came to London to do my, what was at that time, the bar vocational course uh, at BPP Law School in London. And as part of my training, one of the things I had to do was, or one of the things I was encouraged to do through my inn of court was to to attend a training weekend, advocacy training weekend at Cumberland Lodge, which is uh, um, the Royal Lodge that was the patron of my inn, Middle Temple, was the Queen Mother at the time. And so so we had this this weekend advocacy training course. And on the uh, on the Saturday nights, after we, we'd been taken through uh, a number of different exercises, I, I was sitting in the bar having a discussion with two two senior practitioners. One who's now a Queen's Counsel and is very active um, in advocacy training, and another who's now a circuit judge, and exchanging war stories 
the barrister at that time, who's now a judge, introduced me to her husband, who was prosecuting in one of the international tribunals. And she recommended that I get involved with international work. And I thought that was, it sounded so exciting, so far away from what from what I envisaged my, my career to be, um, that I thought, actually, I really do want to do this. And, and so I, I was all set to, to go to East Timor until my wife told me that um, that was not really going to happen. And my wife, being from Bosnia, uh, made it clear that if I was going to be going to any post-war country, I would be going to her post-war country. Um, and so I think the, the the next incidental situation that presented itself was being on holiday in Bosnia just after I'd got married, um, sort of meeting my in-laws for the first time, that I realised that you know Bosnia was, was, was a wonderful country and... And I realised it was important for my wife to to spend time there, having been forced to flee when she was sixteen years old. Um, so we we were trying to find a way to 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 go and spend a bit of time there. And then I was uh, I was offered a job, um, and I was offered a job as a human rights lawyer um, through one of our friends who was a human rights lawyer there um, at this court, the the Bosnian Human Rights Chamber. Each Bosnian lawyer partnered with an international lawyer, and so. Uh, I was asked to to apply for a vacant post, and I and miraculously I, I got the job. What year was this? This was end of two thousand one. So I then moved to Bosnia um, in early two thousand and two with uh, no funding, taking a huge chance. Um, I was, you know, I didn't come from a wealthy background. I didn't have huge financial support behind me, but I thought that this was. Uh, an incredible opportunity. So, so I decided to to do a three month um, secondment, effectively, with this court um, to to gain some experience. And actually, the three months ended up being eight years. And as the the, the position I had was extended and extended um, until the end of a two year period, and I was getting ready to return to the UK, and then Bosnia set up this uh, domestic war crimes court. Um, and I was one of the first internationals sort of pulled into that to to assist in advising on setting up that court. Um, and so then that was another opportunity that presented itself more through luck than planning um, that I then developed um, experience in in war crimes prosecution. Um, and so after spending the next i guess the next 6 7 years there i then decided that it was that it was time to come home to come home to to england um and i was offered a, a place in chambers a nine bedford row um primarily through having worked with joanna corner um as as we know who's now just been appointed as the judge at the international criminal court but i worked closely with joanna in that role in prosecution for a number of years and then she she really pushed me to to apply to nine bedford road to join and, and that's what happened and then i returned to england so you are regarded as one of the most important and perhaps eclectic and comprehensive international practitioners out there how did you which I understand is a lot of serendipity and a lot of uh, anecdotes that make a professional and then the Forta career, and I'm very much uh, the same in the same situation. But how did you manage to embrace in all this experience in in Bosnia and transform it in a more 
as I said, perhaps eclectic in a, in a, in a wider international practice now once um, back at the, the United Kingdom. I think, first of all, um, the work that I did in Bosnia exposed me to incredibly high-level work uh, right at the beginning of my career. So, um, and, you know, there are, there are plus and minuses to that. Um, first of all, it's very, very difficult, or I thought it was going to be very difficult to, to be able to compete or to top what I'd already done in Bosnia. But I think the important thing is that it, it had exposed me and put me in contact with people who were heads of institutions, who were senior members of the United Nations. And so it, it had given me uh, a great CV to, to, to take, take it forward. And, and when, I, when I arrived in, in the UK, uh, when I started practicing in chambers, so initially I was dealing with um, extradition matters primarily. Um, and then I think something happened that really changed my career, and that was Bangladesh. Um, and I had, I'd not really been actively looking to, to work on any international case. I'd started working at that point with uh, Stephen Kay, QC, who, who's now head of Nine Bedford Row. I was working with him on, on a case at the ICC in relation to um, President Uhuru Kenyatta. And then Bangladesh um, presented itself. And I would say that the Bangladesh case really uh, changed the course of my career um, for for the better. Um, that's not to say that it it was not with with its uh, without its own challenges. But um, many years later, after I'd finished working on that, and I, I ended up working on the case for for nine or ten years. But um, I actually asked the the client at one point, why did they choose me? Um, because it had such an impact on my career, and I was incredibly grateful for the opportunity to work on the case. But why did they choose me? Um, and I was uh, half expecting them to tell to tell me that you know they had uh, researched young members of the bar that had experience in this area of law. Um, and actually, what they said was that they did a Google search, and my name alphabetically was the first one that came up. Um, so, so it wasn't, it wasn't quite the answer I was, I was looking for, but at least it was an honest answer. Um, but regardless, um, I was, I was fortunate to, to be thrown in to a case, uh, or that w- that was going to, I think, change the way we deal with cases of this kind. Um, and the reason I say that is that I flew out to Bangladesh with Stephen Kay in um, end of 2010 and, and met the clients and met the, the local lawyers that we were working with. And I had no idea what, what this case was going to be like. And for me to fly to Bangladesh, that in itself, for, for those that know me and, and actually knew me at the time, was quite something because I had never flown out of Europe intentionally because I was terrified, um, and I still am, terrified of flying. Um, and so for me to fly at the time to fly from London to Dubai and Dubai to, to Dhaka was, was quite something. But having said that, it was an incredible case to be working on. These were cases from the 1971 War of Liberation. Um, these, this was a, a religious group of leaders who were put on trial for effectively uh, opposing independence in 1971 and, and being allegedly 
um, collaborating with the Pakistani army um, to to commit war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. But what what was clear to me was that um, as as meritorious as as it might be for setting up a judicial institution forty years after conflict, this was not a a legal process that was going to be based on the rule of law. Um, this was a process that was set up by a vindictive political leader to remove political opponents. And and the trials were were a sham, a complete sham. And I made that quite clear publicly. And as a result of that, on my, my fifth visit, or my or almost my sixth visit to, to Bangladesh in August 2011, actually um, the 5th of August 2011, a day that I'll never forget, because I'd said to my my wife, who I'd left on holiday the day before, um, I, I joked with her and as I was leaving and said, look, one of these days they're going to arrest me. Um, unfortunately, I had to phone up my wife from the airport to say, uh, yes, I'm just about to be arrested. And I was held for about 10 hours at the airport um, and then deported with the very stark warning, do not ever attempt to come back. And that was just because I was acting for the political opposition and I was public in my criticisms of a judicial process that that was based on fraud. Um, and I think what it what it created was the reliance on the media and on an effective communication strategy to bring about a desired result in an international case where you are confronted with a judicial system that is effectively corrupt to the core. So, and that, I think it changed the way that I looked at cases after that. And a lot of the work that I've, I've, I've done since then has been using the media, using communications, using lobbying to to affect a, a just result in an international matter. And Toby, then the question perhaps, so the obliged question is, and when did the Guernica idea uh, came about and, and why that jump from such a perhaps safe um, structure to safe platform into a fairly experimental one? Well, I think my, my wife would probably be the first person to say that I very rarely do what's safe. And I, I, I tend to get itchy feet and bored if, if things are not exciting. Um, and I, and I you know, made a big jump um, two or three times in, in, in my life um, to, to, to try and, um, you know, I suppose, bring a little bit more excitement to, to my daily existence. So but i think the what happened was the the work that i was doing at that time and for some time i'd realized that the the chamber system and particularly um the traditional chamber system is not set up to to deal with um, international cases and then i think i'm not alone in thinking that i mean many barristers that i've spoken to that have an international practice many of them will have the same criticisms that the the chamber system is just not set up to deal with managing a practice like this and so 
I had at that time already started to to think about my future. I was I was doing quite a lot of work at that time with Cherie Blair in her firm Omnia Strategy, and um, Cherie had set up what was you know I guess one of the first hybrid institutions, which was not a chambers, not a law firm. It was a it was a, a mixture of the two, which. They were just starting to emerge, I think, at the time that that Cherie had this idea to set that up, and so so I was doing a lot of work with them, and also doing the work in chambers, but also doing some of the lobbying communications work. And then I I happened to meet someone who changed everything, I think, um, and that was you, I guess. So I think at that time I was working on a Syrian case, and you were also working on a Syrian case, and. Um, and one of our mutual contacts suggested that we that we speak, and so um, I remember that we didn't necessarily hit it off immediately. And I think we were both protective of our of our own positions. But I think once we realised um, that there was so much in common, and and I think we had a shared vision on how to do things. I think we we became closer and closer until I think we both admitted to ourselves as well as to each other that we were not happy where we were and we wanted to to do something different and i think it was when you invited me to to san francisco when you were still at um the center for justice and accountability when i, I was asked to present the award to to navid pillay i think that was sort of one of the first times or that was the the defining point for me that I really wanted to work with you and build something with you because I thought we had that shared shared vision and that was when I guess the idea really really started for Guernica and for our uh, oh sorry that I interrupted but what I do often so I think that the people should see us in a <laughs> in the real world uh, absolutely the the so for our our unorthodox audience that I think this podcast has, and I and I know that they're from many fields. And what is Guernica? Can you explain Guernica? I don't think I've ever heard you explaining Guernica. I get to explain it every other time, but I haven't heard you explaining Guernica. Well, look, I think, I think Guernica is, I think as we always describe it, it is an innovative approach to justice. It's taking the best components of what is a barrister's chambers, and what is a nonprofit, and fusing them together to effectively address um, inequality, to address accountability, and to address um, um, justice. And I think, I think for me, what Guernica represents, and and why I'm so proud to have um, started this with you, is that it, it fuses what is the traditional barristers' chambers with an international practice that is ordinarily uh, limited to to non-profit human rights NGOs. And I think it's probably the only chambers that is dedicated exclusively to international work. And it, it is certainly the, the only chambers that I'm aware of that, that has a non-profit side closely connected to it. And, and I think what that, what that gives us is an opportunity to to do traditional legal work, but also to focus on development work in post-conflict situations. And one of the things that struck me when I was 
in a traditional set of chambers is that the the work that I really, really wanted to do, I couldn't do because it was all pro bono. And it was it's very it was very, very difficult difficult as being a barrister relatively early on in practice to 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 have an exclusively um, pro bono or non-profit practice. I appreciate that uh, many of my colleagues in who are criminal barristers generally regard having a criminal practice in in England and Wales right now is is pretty much the same non-profit pro bono work because of the legal aid situation. But but I think the the work that really interested me in which. I felt as though I could make a difference was not work that I was ever going to get paid to do. And so you have to have a source of income or you have to be incredibly wealthy, which uh, I, I am not and I was not. You have to have a financial base in order to be able to do that kind of work and in order to make a difference. And, and so by fusing the, 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 the profit with the non-profit, you can actually do that and you can actually do work that you feel really proud of, of doing. And so, you know, the work that we've done in Colombia, the work that we've done for Syria, for Libya, in all of these conflict and post-conflict situations is incredibly important. But we wouldn't have the opportunity to do that if we were not set up in this way. And the other thing which I think is particularly important about um, Guernica, uh, whether we look at the Chambers or the Centre, is in its membership. The people that form Guernica is what I think makes Guernica so, so, so impressive. And, you know, I think you and I are very, very fortunate in that the people that we are surrounded by and who we work with on a daily basis, whether they are an intern with us for three months or some of our younger lawyers who have been with us for for years, to the senior lawyers who who help guide us and give us advice and support. I mean, these are the very best at what they do. They are hugely dedicated to what they do, and they all share that same passion for truth, justice, and accountability. And I think that's that's what makes it so important, and that's what makes it such an innovative way of working. I can honestly say that. I wake up every day knowing that what what I have to do today is not going to be the same as what I did yesterday. And every day presents new challenges. And I think that's 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 what gives me the excitement and the drive to continue is that we work on so many different situations and we have the support to do that. And as a barrister, you don't have that support. You don't have that expertise. You know, I don't I don't know an enough when I start on a situation about the the the, the history um, and the politics of Venezuela. But we have people who 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 do. And that's why I think it's such a good way to work on on cases like that. And but we also have those that have a completely independent practice as a barrister as well. So so I think we have the best of both worlds. I agree. I, I like to think that we we have uh, a formula that guarantees that we can also hold ourselves accountable to the work and never lose sight of what really matters at the end. You know, the, the main maybe talking about victims is being even to to reductions, but it is really that you need to impact countries 
and empower people to be able to change some of the situations that we face. And I do believe that this formula, but obviously um, for those who, you know, sometimes wonder, is a formula that guarantees, well, that, the expertise, the knowledge and the technical ability to, to make the changes that are necessary. Absolutely, and I think I mean one of the one of the interesting uh, questions that quite quite frequently comes up. So, uh, I mean, I was asked this when I was working on Bangladesh, and and I've recently been asked that in relation to the work that we do uh, at the Kosovo Specialist Chambers as well. So, the, the the quite often the question is asked, well, you know, if you're if you're striving to represent victims. And this is all about victim representation and improving a system of justice. How can you then represent um, individuals who are accused of, of of crimes? And the way that I always answer that is particularly with reference to to the English legal system, and and that our English legal system and our, our, our judicial system is so strong because of the the independence of the profession the the profession the professionalism of barristers whether prosecuting or defending and i think in order to to serve the interests of justice there has to be a rigorous um prosecution and defense otherwise that system um really serves no no purpose and that was why I got involved with Bangladesh, the Bangladesh International Crimes Tribunal was to was to really test the system and to to ensure that only those persons for which the evidence demonstrated were guilty would be convicted and convicted according to the evidence. Unfortunately, it was a an entirely loaded system, and so we were never going to succeed. But I think you have to have strong advocates to ensure that the system is uh, the the system represents justice and it and, and it follows the rule of law otherwise as i say it serves no purpose whatsoever toby when we conceive these podcasts we call it the accountability Podcast, and we have gathered, like us, uh, including you, some of the most interesting voices in the field um, of justice and accountability around the world to come and to allow and, and graciously um, being interviewed, which we have no business in being interviewers, as everybody can see uh, now from me, and and said very interesting things. So I'm glad that I have the opportunity now to ask you the question that we ask everybody, which is what does accountability mean to you? And how, um, and it's funny, you know, to talk about this in, in, a, in this pandemic and one of the deepest moments of this pandemic and as the world has changed dramatically and as today as a day the 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 Tory party in the United Kingdom got all the overwhelming vote for Brexit so everything is changing fast and not necessarily to a better place so what what do you think accountability is and 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 how can we improve it secure it uh, in the current um, set of events well, look, it's it's a really interesting question, 
And I can answer it by reflecting on some of the answers that I've been given in in the previous podcast before I, I give my my view. And I think one of the one of the most interesting answers that I received um, to that question was from a a Syrian documentary maker producer, Wad Al Khatib, who made this uh, incredible film for Sama about the attacks on the Al Quds Hospital in Aleppo in in 2016. And so, what was particularly interesting for me when I asked asked that question was her answer was it's something that they've never experienced in their lifetime. And so I think you have to look at what accountability means to the audience that you're serving. For for, for Ward, it meant being able to hold individuals accountable for, for the crimes that they had committed for years, for decades in Syria. And to produce or to 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 establish a system that they've never seen before. They'd never seen a a system based on the rule of law. They'd never seen a system based on justice. And so, how can we serve them? Well, we can serve them by giving them a voice. And I think first and for, foremost, accountability to me means giving the those persons who have been targeted, whether it is through through uh, conflict, uh, whether it is through the abduction, disappearance, torture of family members, um, whether it is the destruction of their homes and their communities, it is giving them a voice and giving them access to justice, giving them the a, a route to or or. I would say a forum in which those complaints can be heard and that their voice can be heard and not silenced. Um, I was interested to read this week about the the Saudi activist uh, Lujane, who she had been pushing for um, for for women's rights, and she, she was effectively thrown in jail for um, for advocating for women's rights. Um, which is which is unbelievable, and so she was convicted for effectively um, communicating with international organisations for uh, for speaking to the United Nations and for for calling for women to have the same rights as men. And she was effectively sentenced to to six years in prison. She she may be released within the next two or three months, but she will not be able to leave her country. There's a a ban on her leaving her country for five years. And if she breaches the terms of her release, she'll be thrown back in jail. And so that is censoring her voice, that is removing her voice, that she will not be able to safely advocate for the rights of of, of women. Accountability to me means holding those people responsible who have removed those, those rights. And I think that at its core is what it means to me. question and maybe perhaps uh, the most personal I know for you know how thankful I am that we came together and they put together this 
this experiment is now four years old and we have, like you say, an extraordinary team that makes our our days easier in our project um, real every day. So whom are you thankful to and who would you like, you know, do you think that that is really the cause of you being here and now and, and doing all of this? Well, I think I think the the list is long of the people that I'm I'm very thankful thankful to. Um, one of the things that I've I've said recently, um, you know, we're we've received at Goethe um, hundreds of requests for advice to people on on how how to how to succeed in international practice, how to build an international practice, how to have the strength and the courage to to to, to make such decisions to pursue a career such as this. And the way that I've always said this or answered this is that I would not be where I am now had it not been for the opportunities that I've been given by a number of people. And, you know, there are, I think, a number of people that have enabled me to, to succeed in what I do. I mean, first and foremost, there was the support that I had from my sister-in-law, Tali, um, and, and from her father as well, uh, who sadly passed away, um, to give me the support and the, the financial backing in order to, to um, study law. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for the support that my wife gives to me on a daily basis and, and the encouragement my two daughters give to me every day. I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, I'm always thankful to, to Joanna Corner um, for, for what she has given me and the support that she has given me. Um, and I know that I would not have um, even started my career had it not been for the time that I spent with her in Bosnia working very closely and the guidance that she gave me and continues to give me. And so I'm so pleased that she is now been appointed as a judge at the International Criminal Court, and I think she will do a fantastic job. Um, and so, you know, I'm grateful to her as well. And then, you know, sort of more closer to home or uh, at Guernica, I think the two most important people for me who who I, I speak to every single day uh, is you and Carl. Um, you know, I think without the two of you, I would not be able to do what we have to do every day. Um, and I hope that I give you encouragement, um, in the same way that you give me encouragement and have given me the passion, um, to, I think what you've given me is the, is the passion that had started to evaporate, um, before we started this. Um, and I think that was, that was really the, um, the fear that I had that, that I was losing, interest and losing passion so i think i'm thankful um for you for that and and carl carl is somebody who i've known since since university carl was one of the first people i met at university and somebody who i've worked with closely ever since and the only i think the only time that carl and i didn't work together or study together was the the, the years i was in bosnia but when i came back we worked very closely together but i think as you've said, and uh, to repeat it, um, every single member at Guernica, um, every single person that we work with, I'm incredibly grateful to because uh, you and I would not be able to do the incredible work we do to the 
exceptionally high level if, if it was not for each and every person who forms Guernica, uh, because Guernica is a family. That is true. Well, Toby, as we come to an end of this delightful interview, I must ask, and I think everybody expects me to, two very important questions. And, you know, we lawyers usually become lawyers having followed some people that we emulate or some people that we admire. And at the same time, we spend hours and hours and hours drafting and, and reading. And I wanted to ask you, as I think we all do, I will confess, just to break the ice, I will confess that when I draft, if I'm drafting in English, I will always almost unquestionably be listening to the Smiths. And when I'm drafting in Spanish, I will almost always will be listening to Joaquin Sabina. So my question to you is when you draft and when you have those long days just to uh, read or edit, what music do you listen Oh, um, I have a I have a series of songs that I I listen to whenever I'm writing, whenever I'm by myself. A playlist of songs on my phone, and it's invariably a mixture of Rolling Stones, Otis Redding, The Beatles. But I think that the there are two particular songs by The Stones that I listen to uh, obsessively. And Sympathy for the Devil. I think those those are the two Stones songs um, that, are, that I listen to. I also listen a lot to Van Morrison. Van Morrison is one of my particular favorites. I don't know if there's any um, particular song that I listen to. Um, maybe... I think it's called Goodbye Baby Blue or something like that. I listen to that one quite a lot. But I think the song that takes me back to my childhood that I, I still listen to constantly would be Otis Redding, um, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. That's, that's one that I listen to a lot. And then the second question, perhaps even more important, is I think I decided to be a lawyer when I was about four years old. And there's always been two movies that brought to me the desire, and they always remain dear in my heart. One was Adam's Reap with Catherine uh, Hepper, since then became my absolute female heroine and someone that I almost feel like I know and I spend time with her, of how close that is to me, that character anyway. And, and the second one was Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, what are the the characters, the, the fictional characters? They had um, the being, you know, meaningful to you, and perhaps even the, those responsible for you to choose this line of work. Well, unlike unlike you, and unlike a lot of um, lawyers, I I did not um, obsessively um, strive to become a lawyer. Um, when I was young, um, it was I, I was I was always interested in the law, but I was interested in the law in I think in a very different way. Um, so I, I I was quite obsessive about organised crime. That was that was what I I read a lot about. Those are the movies that I watched, and so. But I think the the character um, that compelled me to do. To, to wanting to do what I do. I mean, there, as far as I'm concerned, there is only one fictional legal character um, worth talking about, and that's Horace Rumpole. No other character is is worth talking about. 
every summer I, I go on holiday with my family to to Croatia, and we have this little bar uh, where I will sit and and have a coffee and a glass of rakia, and I will read a book, and they laugh at me because I read the same book every year. And it is it is basically uh, Horace Rumpel, um, and I, I read a combination of different stories of Horace Rumpel, but mostly the the the, the Penge bungalow murders. I mean, that, that's Horace Rumpel is is what I what I read every summer. I don't sort of want to see myself immortalized as as a fat aging bald man who smokes cigars, but. Um, but I think it is the the passion for the law, um, the passion for fighting for your client, whoever your client might be. I think that's that's what Horace Rumpole represents, and I think that's what any true barrister uh, represents. Thank you very much, sir, for sharing your story. I think it was time for everybody to hear it. And it is my private pleasure to explore some of this man's passion into an English barrister. So for that, thank you very much, Mr. Cadman. And thank you for dragging it out of me. <laughs> the Guernica Accountability Podcast is about accountability in different parts of the world and what it means for each of us. This is a subject that we at Guernica are very passionate about. We hope that you walk away from this today with a better understanding of the notion of accountability. If you enjoyed this podcast, as we hope you do, please do follow this series on our website and feel free to post on social media with any comments you may have. You can find our website at www.gronica37.com where you can find more details about what we do and find all of the podcasts in our series. You can find us also on Twitter at GronicaLaw37, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We hope to continue to bring you interesting accounts from around the world. In the next episode, we will be looking at a different approach to accountability, but I won't spoil the surprise now. Thanks for listening. This is the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.